Hey everyone, it's Hills. Before the episode begins, I just wanted to give you a brief update. In episode 23, we talk about COVID testing and the chart that I wanted to find. I did find it. It is linked in the show notes. So in the appetizer, when you're listening to what we have to say about testing, it's in the show notes. It's an article by Mother Jones Magazine. Uh, You could just click it, read it. It's a great article. So with that, enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to episode 23 of Three Course Politics. I'm Hills. And I'm Josh. And we want to wish you all a happy Easter, a happy Passover, uh, soon to be a happy Ramadan for those who practice that. Um, And we have a very Easter bunny episode today. Well, we don't. We don't have any (laughs) Easter egg rolls because we're in quarantine. (laughs) It's also important, Hills, to realize that this might be a one-month anniversary for some people who have been in quarantine for a month so uh congratulations on the one month in quarantine happy one month oh my god didn't know you had a one month <laughs> yep. dang um well today we're going to cover a couple of things uh for appetizer we're going to talk about uh an update on the coronavirus uh everywhere in the world in the u.s new york um certain states maryland uh, for your entree we're going to talk about bernie sanders his out uh, being out of the primary and about the Wisconsin primary election that happened earlier last week that we still do not have results for and we will talk about why and then your side dish is going to be life in quarantine what has gone bad in your fridge <laughs> because we've been we've been in quarantine a month there's probably something that has gone bad a leftover oh, yeah. that you forgot about pasta that you forgot about in the fridge talking about myself <laughs> and <laughs> and your dessert, uh, there have been numerous lists of who the VP choices for Biden can be. And we're going to discuss our top three choices uh, that we think Biden should pick for vice presidential vice president. Uh, Josh, you want to have you want to add anything? Uh, no, I think all that sounds right. And, um, you know, I think this was a big week and it's nice that we can be able to focus on something at least momentarily. It is not only the coronavirus. So I think yeah. the uh, desserts and the entree will be a nice little break for people. Yeah, it's back to our reg- regularly scheduled programming, which is political analysis and what people are going to be doing next, which as three course politics in our 23, 22 episodes have had, we've been pretty, we've been right on a few things, I'd say. You know, if you've been listening, stuff have, that we've said has happened. Um, the last thing we want to do is have you subscribe to the podcast. Um, if you haven't, please do so now. It will help get your episodes much quicker. You don't have to be reminded about anything. It'll download right into your pod, wherever you listen to your podcast. All you have to do is wherever you're listening to your podcast, click subscribe on Three Course Politics. And if you want to go one step further, rate us. You can be honest. You you know you can give us five stars. You can give us seven stars. It's not possible, but, you know, honestly, be honest. It will actually, if once the more people who rate us, it actually helps promote it and spread the word about it. So if you like us or you don't like us, subscribe, rate us, please. It will help. Yes, please, please help us out. Subscribe, rate us. We welcome your feedback. Uh, only the nice stuff, honestly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Josh thought of a really, really good pre-dinner shot question. And uh, it's coming up next. 
Here is your pre-dinner shot. And I had to think about this one for a while because um, it was mentioned to me as I was talking with someone and we were um, discussing how the race was, uh, the race for the 2020 nominee has been wrapped up. So here's your question. How recently was the Democratic primary over in April? So in what year, in what presidential year, was the Democratic primary over in April? How recent was that? Okay, because Joe Biden has won the nomination. He won it in April. And when was the last time that the Democratic primary was over in April? That is your pre-dinner shot question. This one stumped me because I honestly didn't know. And it's really interesting how... The in, the answer is really interesting because it just I wouldn't even have thought the answer was the answer. Yeah, and the it's funny to think about that the, you know that this time it wasn't that long ago, but it also wasn't that recent. So there's yeah, you, like the '80s is like 30, 40 years ago at this point, right? Right, it's crazy. Yeah, so that is your pre-dinner shot question. We will give you the answer at the end of the podcast, and your entree is coming up next. So welcome to your appetizer. Your appetizer, we're going to talk about COVID-19 and the coronavirus updates. So here are the latest updates that we have. If you look at the worldwide numbers, there are now 1,806,436 confirmed cases of coronavirus. There are 111,722 deaths and 413,222 people that have recovered. It's crazy to think that, you know, maybe a couple weeks ago, we weren't even at 1 million, and now we're vastly and quickly approaching 2 million coronavirus cases. That that is, boy, it's growing just exponentially, (laughs) especially here. Yeah. In the United States... Um, There are 535,385 confirmed cases with uh, new cases uh, from yesterday being about 2,506. And total deaths in the U.S., you are at 21,407 with 830 new new deaths. So um, this is still a huge part of our society, and it's really important that people are continuing to social distance themselves. Yeah, and it's sort of like, I think I was watching one of the briefings, and I think this was Dr. Bricks or Dr. Fauci, and they were talking about like how this is a wave. You know, you have a wave of infections, you have a wave of people getting hospitalized, and then unfortunately you have a wave of deaths. So, like yeah. it all, because those people are getting infected... And then they're going to the hospital. So like you're having, they're like stages, right? You know, mm-hmm. they're all happening at the same time. It's just terrible. Yeah. It's, it's just, I mean, you know, I was actually watching uh, um, Bill Maher on Friday and he was saying, something I think is true. He said, you know, Americans don't do well with mass death. You know, um, I think, you know, lots of times when there is mass death, you know, it just, it seems kind of overwhelming. You know, you hear about, uh, I mean, people die, you know, every day in car accidents and gun violence and stuff. And Americans don't really pay much attention to that because it's just a few people. When you get thousands and thousands of people dying, you know, 
every day and you wake up the next morning and you hear situations in New York where they've got hundreds and hundreds of people dying and people are hospitalized and across the country, you know, it's very overwhelming, I think, for a lot of uh, a lot of people. And it's, it's, it's just it's terrible. And, and these are people that have had families and their lives completely uprooted and they can't even go to funerals. They can't, you know, say goodbye to their family members. A lot of people are you know, their loved ones are dying and they can't even be there next to them. It's just, it's just terrible. These are people who had plans for 2020 just a few weeks ago. I mean, if they were old or young or anywhere in between, it's just, all, and not, not all these deaths could have been preventable, but I'm, I'm 100% certain that if the administration has taken more action, we could have had a very low number of deaths. I mean, th- there's a reason why the U.S. is leading in confirmed cases around the world yeah yeah and hills i know that you want to talk about testing a little bit oh yes all right i have a very very uh big annoyance about testing in this country (laughs) so i'm gonna link this in the show notes and you can access the show notes by swiping you know right or left or wherever you access your podcasts and it's it's a graph by the covid tracking project And this graph has the number of daily completed tests. And this was from a couple of days ago, so maybe it changed a little bit. But the number of completed tests have relatively remained between 100,000 and 150,000 for like the last three weeks. And Trump and his briefings, like... They, they, he likes to show this really big chart about like the number of com- number of tests completed, and it's like this really exponentially increasing chart. And it just shows it's a cumulative total. He shows a chart of the cumulative total of tests per day, which is over 2 million. That is very different from the number of new tests per day, right? And if you actually look at his chart, which I honestly could not find on the internet, I don't know why... I will I will search and if I if I, if I can find it <laughs> it will be in the show notes you can guarantee that it just it just shows an an increase of the same number of tests per day so that is telling me that the capacity to test in this country is staying the same despite the number of cases going up so we're actually not testing more people we're testing the same amount of people per day yeah the cumulative total may be over 2 million but it doesn't matter what the cumulative total is. It matters what the daily total is because that shows how much we can actually do. So I'm a little pissed off about that, if you can, <laughs> you can tell. <laughs> I couldn't tell. It seems it's like just you a, were very calm about it. When I first told Josh about this, I was livid. I was like, he cannot read a graph for his life because the, the information showing in the cumulative total of tests doesn't make any difference. It doesn't matter. It matters of how many you're doing per day. Because if you're doing, if you if you did ten per day, sure your cumulative total can be ten thousand. But that means you <laughs> it doesn't matter. Oh God, it gets me so upset. <laughs> and, and just I, I think I think what Hills and I would like to see happen on that on that lovely graph that Trump has is you would like to see a huge explosion of tests. You want to see, you know, today in the United States we tested five hundred thousand people. And then in two days later, three days later, okay, t- today we tested a million people. You want to see, you know, like, like 1.25 million. You want to see a, a huge expansion in, in, in testing, but we're not seeing that. We're seeing the same number of tests more or less being done each day. So as the, as the rate of the virus spreading is still faster than the rate that we can actually test people. And that's such an important point. And that's 
well said, Josh. And that's exactly why we're in this situation where we have half a million people and counting. And, you know, these are half a million people who actually got the test. Not to say right. that there are people who get who have symptoms and definitely have COVID and who are told by doctors, you definitely have COVID, but we cannot test you because we do not have enough tests. So the, the, the number is likely closer to a million or more people in this country who have it. So, and we're never going to get over this if we can't test. Right. And the thing is, the reason that's important is because 80% of people who, who get this, right, don't have severe symptoms. They have, maybe you feel a little sick a couple days and then, then you're fine. But the problem is if you don't know that you have it, right, then when you go out, right, and, and let's say you, let's say you're like, oh, I feel kind of weird. I feel a little, you know, fatigue and I have a very low fever and I'm coughing a little bit. But, you know, I'm going to go out and go for a walk, right? And you go outside and, and you hit, let's just say, you know, the walk sign button. And someone who's perfectly healthy behind you also hits that walk sign button. You may give them COVID and they may get a more severe case of it because maybe they have a pre-existing condition, maybe they're older, you know, or maybe they just don't have the best immune system. You know, there are a million reasons why they could get the, the virus, right? And if you don't know that you have COVID, then how are you know? Then how do you know who you're going to uh, spread it to? So I think that's part of the issue here as well. Yeah, I I, I completely agree. And at some point, the Trump administration is going to realize. I mean, the, the the experts and anyone who with a brain realizes that oh, South Korea stopped their infection rate because they tested everyone and anything, and now kids in South Korea are going back to school because they did the hard work and they paid a lot of money to test people. Here, we let the open market control the testing, and <laughs> we haven't commandeered the capacity right. to expand our testing. So um, we're not going to get through this unless we can test people, or unless a miracle comes out of it, out of the, the sky, and we have a way to treat this virus. Um, so, Hills, how are things looking in uh, New York? Things in New York are still not good. We are the epicenter in the country. We have the most coronavirus cases in the entire world. Uh, the total cases as of now is 181,000 people in New York. The state of New York, I don't have the city numbers, but you know, I would say a good chunk of that is New York City. And um, we have 9,385 people who have died with uh, 758 people yesterday who passed away. Um, the, the only silver lining in this is that you know, we have had we've had a lower hospitalization rate in New York and a lower ICU rate in New York, which is good. That means the social distancing, the stopping of people working and doing everything is actually starting to take effect. But it's not done yet. I mean, over six, uh, over, you know, 9,000 New Yorkers have died and that's 9,000 families that that are struggling and we have a way to go before the infection rate decreases continually but what we're seeing yeah the number of deaths is really high but just as we mentioned in the early part of the episode we have waves so the people who are unfortunately and tragically dying right now are people who or who have had infections in the last you know they presented their case in the last two to three weeks right which is when you know the infection rate wasn't being stopped so now that we're almost a month into this we're starting to see the effects of social distancing yeah, but well, we're not. I know that um, everyone around the world and around the, the U.S. is um, praying for people in New York because it's just, you know, 
Uh, I hear these stories about how, oh, it looks like it's getting better. And, um, you know, it seems like there are some silver linings. But, you know, for the, for the most part, it's still a very dire situation. And something that, that's crazy to think about um, is that more people in New York have died than the people in Iowa, Delaware, Oregon, Minnesota, and Idaho total cases combined. So if you combine all of those states, right, you have uh, 8,547 people who have coronavirus in the, amongst those six, uh, five, five, five states. Yeah, five states, right? And in New York, uh, the total deaths are 9,385. So that's five states. Yeah, absolutely. It's a density absolutely problem. Density problem. It's harder to stay away from people in, the, in a big city like this, where in Idaho and Iowa, you have to, you know, you, you live, you have a car, you have to drive places like in most of America. But in New York, it's a special situation where you are on top of everyone. And that's not in Maryland. Here, they've been Maryland's treating virus. Numbers, um, their total cases are 8,225, which is up 531 from yesterday. There are 235 deaths, which is up 29 from yesterday. Um, so <clears throat> Maryland is currently under a stay at home order until, uh, sometime. No one knows when the stay at home order is going to, uh, wear off. The governor has said he won't take it away until the state of emergency in Maryland has been lifted. Stay at home order means you have to stay in your house unless you are traveling for anything that is deemed to be essential or for groceries, or for medicine, medical care, or to go for a walk. But if you go for a walk, you have to be social distancing yourself. Um, the Baltimore-Washington corridor has been labeled by the Trump administration, uh, in part thanks to Governor Hogan uh, pushing for it, um, as an emerging hotspot. So the, that's the whole Baltimore-Washington DMV area. Uh, the peak in the DMV right now looks to be in uh, late April or early May. It's a little bit unclear. Um, different models have different things. Uh, in Maryland, they say uh, this upcoming week could be the hotspot in Maryland, um, with Virginia following just after that, and D.C. happening sometime uh, in May, although the, the mayor, uh, Mayor uh, Bowser, um, uh, in D.C. has just said that it might be June when the hotspot happens. The voting in primaries has been extended to June 2nd, and it is going to be done entirely by mail, or at least almost entirely by mail in ballots, um, assuming that we have the funding for it. And there have been some in retirement communities here in Maryland. So um, things are not nearly as bad as they are in New York, but you know, you, you never want to be the next emerging hotspot. So. No, you never do. And we're going to talk about mail-in ballots yes. in, in the next section. So <laughs> police, hold your horses. We we are going to get to it. And we're going to get to uh, it just a few more things on coronavirus. Um, in California and Washington, that's where you're seeing some really positive signs. Um, rates are going down and they are stagnating in both of those uh, areas. So in California, there are 22,409 confirmed cases with 633 deaths. And in Washington, there are 10,448 cases with 494 deaths. So um, Washington hasn't uh, reported a new death in a little in quite a little bit of time. So that's uh, good for Washington. Um, those states are returning ventilators either to the national stockpile or they're even donating them directly to other states. 
I know that Maryland got about 50 ventilators from uh, California. I know, I think, Hills, New York got about 100, I think, from California. They got, like, they got 140 yeah, from Oregon. Like um, it's really nice to see uh, states kind of come together uh, since the government can't do it. Um, and uh, the peak here may not be until May. Uh, since containment is going is going well, scientists are just, are just looking to these states as models, um, just as Three Course Politics said in the previous episode. So, look at that. Hey, look at that. I want to just highlight one other thing. Um, if you look at the top two states in the United States, it's New York, as Hill said, with one hundred and eighty-one thousand one hundred forty-four cases, followed by New Jersey with fifty-eight thousand one hundred fifty-one. Now, both those are staggering numbers, but you could double. New Jersey, and still not hit the number of cases that are in New York. And you drop below that, and you've got Michigan with 23,993. Again, that's a staggering number, but it's it that number also could be doubled and still not hit the number of cases that are in New Jersey. Same with Massachusetts, and California, <laughs> and Pennsylvania, uh. and Louisiana. I mean, those are the most hard-hit states, and Florida is right up there. Florida is climbing up the, the charts very quickly because Ron DeSantis is doing an excellent job in Florida. Um, but <laughs> Excellent job in spreading COVID but for the, the COVID virus. Some of these places, and, governor for. you know, it's terrible and the numbers are, are astronomical, but it's just not to the same level as New York and New Jersey. So um, that's just something to, for people to think about. Yes. Uplifting. Uh, we, we are, yeah, the situation here is not very good, but you know, California, Washington, as Josh mentioned, they are, most of the country does look like California and Washington. Most of the country actually does not look like New York and New Jersey because, you know, New York is the highest density population in the United States. So like the, the suburban, the suburban layout and the urban layout here are a little bit different, but if you're looking around most of the country, I would say about 85 to, you know, something percent, they look a lot more like the urban, suburban, rural divide of California. And the and encouraging thing, hopefully, is that as you see rates in California uh, and Washington begin to stagnate and maybe go down, you think about where the rest of the country was. I mean, the first cases were in Washington and California. And the other places are probably two to three weeks behind those 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 places. So... We, we may be in this, you know, at least until the end of April, uh, beginning of May, before we start to see rates uh, stagnate and decline. And then when they do start to decline, it's really important that we realize, okay, things are getting better. Now let's just open everything up. It's like, no, no, no. We need to have a, a plan for how to do that. And we need to be able to open up small sectors of the economy one at a time to slowly integrate people back into some kind of normalcy. So that come November or December or October or September or whatever it might be later in the fall, when we try to open the economy up more, we're not just getting hit with this second wave. Or or when if we open up the economy too early, right? Or if we right. say go back to work or whatever, and there are people who are infected, it right. just starts over again, right? You've undone right. Yeah. everything that you've done, right? It's But it's, wait, Hills, uh, hold on. So... Um, this is but Easter. That, that's where Aren't the situation. The church is, is packed. <laughs> I was in church this morning. 
I was there. I was I was with a hundred and fifty of my fellow New Yorkers, and we were beautiful <laughs> spreading beautiful. COVID. All right. Well, the word of COVID. Uh, that is your appetizer, and we have a non-COVID entree coming up next. Welcome to your Easter entree today, and we're going to be talking about Bernie Sanders dropping out of the presidential race and about the Wisconsin primary election slash voting. So if you haven't heard, Bernie Sanders has officially dropped out of the presidential race, making Biden the presumptive Democratic nominee once he officially clinches the delegate totals, which he will. And he's got no other challenger. Nope. So that's why he's the presumptive nominee. <laughs> that's what happens. We actually have a clip of uh, the actual you know, 20-ish second uh, period where Bernie announces that he's going to end his candidacy. Let's take a listen. And so today, I am announcing the suspension of my campaign. Please know that I do not make this decision lightly. In fact, it has been a very difficult and painful decision. Over the past few weeks, Jane and I, in consultation with top staff and many of our prominent supporters, have made an honest assessment of the prospects for victory. So as he notes, he has no path forward for the nomination. He just doesn't. He, he's he been losing states that he's won in 2016 uh, in the Super Tuesday Part 3 or whatever it was. He he only won <laughs> like a couple of counties between Illinois, Missouri, and Michigan. I mean, maybe, you know, two or three counties. I mean, that's that's not what a competitive candidate does. In addition to all the COVID-related things that we're dealing with, many states have moved their primaries back, as Josh mentioned that Maryland did, New York did as well. And Bernie can't do any rallies. It might be until May or June that he would be able to campaign again at earliest. And it's hard for any candidate, Biden, Bernie, anyone. It's hard for anyone, especially if you're an underdog and want to come back in an election. You, It's almost impossible to do that without doing an in-person event or anything like that. Um, his speech, if you want to listen to the entire speech, was one thanking his movement he had a couple of kind words for Biden, but it was really focused on his supporters and his movement, which make a lot of sense being that he wants to focus on the people who helped him rather than, you know, endorsing Biden straight out the gate. And he probably needs to work with Biden a little bit. But that's kind of what happened in his speech. Josh, do you have any takeaways from from Bernie dropping out and his speech? Um, yeah, I think this was a long time coming. I think. Uh, some of us on the podcast, including yours truly, have thought that Bernie should have been out a long time ago. <laughs> so um, I'm glad that he dropped out. Um, and a quick note uh, about the Alaska primary, which happened uh, yesterday, or I guess we got the results yesterday. Technically, it's it's you know it's it, it's been on, it's been going on for about a week or so now. Uh, but Biden won the Alaska primary. By about 2,000 votes, around 53 to 43, uh, he'll get 11 of the, of the 15 delegates and Bernie will get four. Now, this probably wouldn't matter most parts, just another, you know, 15 candidate or 15 delegate state. But the point about Alaska here is that Alaska was Bernie's second best state in 2016. So it was his second best state right behind Vermont. Um, it was all mail-in ballots. So that sometimes does well for Bernie voters. It was a uh, rank primary, which is similar to a caucus, not the exact same thing as a caucus, 
Um, but also more importantly, majority of people mailed in these ballots before Bernie even dropped. So this is when Bernie still had a chance, when Bernie did not suspend his campaign. And he still lost by 10 percentage points uh, to Biden. So this really highlights the fact that Bernie did not have a path forward. And, you know, he did the right thing by dropping out. And, um, you know, we'll talk as this entree goes on about, you know, what happened and why it matters. But just a little note about Alaska. Yeah, uh, it's not the Klondike steak, is, is it? No, it's... Um... Do you know what the slogan no. is for Alaska? Oh, the Big man. Dipper really State, the last frontier, been... but it's it's the something state. We're going to find it for you. Uh, but as Josh mentioned, <laughs> we're, we're actually going to talk about what happened. So we've been talking about this for a little bit, but what happened to Bernie Sanders? What do we think went wrong for him? We're going to do a little bit of a postmortem on his candidacy. So let's start with this. Number one, he has lost several primaries he should have won. Alaska might be one of them, Michigan for sure, and the data we brought you on the prior podcast make it especially clear. He spooked moderate voters, he lost the older vote, and he couldn't turn out enough youth vote where his, that's where his coalition was the strongest. So not only did he lose a big swath of voters, he couldn't turn out the people he needed to in his coalition in those states where they were, where the primaries were held, to the degree that he needed to. He couldn't make it competitive enough. And if you can have a ton of people support him in Brooklyn or in other urban centers, but if your primary, if you're, if those are, you know, highly concentrated in certain states, that means you're going to lose a bunch of other ones, right? So that's number one. Number two, the did the party work to stop him? Maybe. Yeah, I would say they probably did when Pete and Buttigieg, Amy and Beto all endorsed <laughs> Biden. That that is they made a calculated decision there, but you know that's happened in the past. They're candidates who have gone up. That's the, that's politics. Did he make grave mistakes? Did Bernie make grave mistakes by not trying to expand his base? A hundred percent. And the moderates and black voters, largely blacks in general, decided this election. The Democratic primaries' core constituency or African-American voters, and he did not try hard enough. It's as evident, doesn't matter what he did in the last five years he was running for president, he did not try hard enough to court the black vote. As Josh said in in one of our other pods, he didn't ask Jim Clyburn, who is the head of basically the South Carolina Democratic Party and the leader in the black community, he didn't ask for his endorsement. You cannot win without that. Just can't. Number three. He had no message for moderates and continually insulted many in the party. I mean, I and Josh, do you remember this tweet that he did? I think I sent it to you, where it was like it was like after Super Tuesday, he said, you know, when the Democrat, the Republicans can't stop us, the Democrats can't stop us. He's oh yeah, he said something bad effect. He's running to be the head of the Democratic Party. What are you talking about? And that just insults people. (laughs) I mean, people who pay attention to that. He wasn't a team player, and he couldn't be the leader of the party. He didn't reach out to moderate voters, and he didn't try. He just did not try to reach out to these voters who, honestly, probably may be open to Bernie Sanders and seeing what he had to say. And between the Fidel Castro comments and everything else, when the spotlight was put on Bernie, as usual, I have a little personal animosity, but he does not perform. And you could you could disagree with everything I'm saying about Bernie, but 
we have a ton of data to go off of right now. There has been a ton of primary elections, and the data is very clear. Number four, and lastly, of what happened, his platform was popular and progressive, and a lot of people do like his platform, 100%, but that wasn't enough to bring out voters. Illinois and Michigan are key indicators of how he lost many areas that came out for him in 2016. You could just look at maps of 2016. He won a lot of the rural parts of the, the states. Um, not because, But it's because it wasn't because of him. It was because they disliked Hillary Clinton. And that was one of his, I think, the gravest error he made was he didn't recognize that fact. I, I think, Hills, your points are right on. And I think people really underestimated how much um, people did not like Hillary Clinton. And it really goes to show that a lot of the votes very well may have just been anti-Clinton um, votes. And people said to themselves, you know what, I'm going to give this Bernie guy a, a try because I hate uh, Clinton. And, you know, maybe his movement wasn't quite as big as he liked to think it was, as we all thought it was. Um, the other thing, Hills, I think is important is just to remember that um, there were 28 candidates who started this race. And I know that, like a lot of Democrats, I was open to pretty much any candidate. I just wanted to hear what they said. And when Bernie talked about, as you said, his tweet where it was something along the lines of, um, you know, we're going to send this message to the Republican Party and you can't stop us. And the Democratic Party, you can't stop us. I'm like, well, why are you saying the message to me? I'm supposed to be on your side. Like, <laughs> you know, it just it's his his whole thing of taking on the establishment. Right. Like, I get that. But you, you, you kind of need some of the establishment for Democrats to be on your side. And it's just, you know, I think, you know, he made a lot of mistakes and you made a good point, Hills, when you talked about how the fact that he didn't, you know, he ran for president in 2016 and he came very, very close. And if he knew he was going to run again in 2020, how do you not talk about with your staff, how do we reach out to African-American voters? How do we, you know, the biggest thing, like you said, is he didn't ask Jim Clyburn for his endorsement. That doesn't show a sign of a campaign that is trying to grow. That shows a sign of a campaign that is stuck with, here's what we're going to do. Here's what worked in 2016. It worked so great in 2016. The party was just against us. The establishment was mm -hmm. against us. No more su no more super delegates now. So now we're, we're going to just do the same thing in 2020. It's going to be great. It's like, no, you have to evolve. Your party, your party has to evolve your platform has to evolve you have to show that you can you know grow from your experience and he did not show that so um i think that's something that should not be overlooked i think you made really great points there josh i also found the tweet and i'm going to i'm we're going to put it in the show notes so you can look at the tweet yourself but i'm also going to repeat the tweet in a bernie sanders voice so you can kind of get the the sense okay <laughs> so <clears throat> i've got news for the republican establishment I've got news for the Democratic establishment. They can't stop us. That was a tweet. At February 21st. Ugh. Can you imagine that? And, <laughs> like, seriously. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. If his tweet had just said, I've got news for the Republican Party, the Republican establishment. You can't stop us. Boom. That's it. End it there. All right? That's fine. End it right there. And great. You're taking on the Republicans. Great. 
But he threw in the Democrats. And for lots of Bernie bros out there, or Bernie or bus people, it gives them the message that the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are the exact same. Yeah, that's important. And it's just not true, and it's da- and it's dangerous. It's dangerous. And, and you know, even even if he wanted to include something about Democrats, right? He could have said, I've got news for Republican par- establishment. They can't stop us. I've got news for those in the Democratic Party who are skeptical of us. Um, or, like... I will I will work to right. hard to earn your vote. Something like that, right? Like right. like they right. just yeah. something else. Like I've got news um for the people in the Democratic Party who are for the folks in the Democratic Party who are skeptical, I will work as hard as I can to earn your vote. That's what you usually say, right? <laughs> I'm I'm not running for office, but I right. would probably say that. Right. Or something like, you know, the Republican Party can't stop us. The Democratic Party, you know, um, if you don't believe in our in our movement or believe in our, in our message, you know, I hope tonight uh, brings you inspiration. Or I hope tonight gives you reason to hope or reason to join us. Something along those yep. lines. But you can't stop us. It's like, well, we're on, we're on the same team. <laughs> uh, Hills, I'm going to share with our listeners a quick secret. I'm not sad that Bernie's out of the race. You heard it here first. It was your Easter secret. He's not sad. <laughs> I, you know, I think if he was a, if he perform, if he carried himself a little bit better, I would, you know, feel different about him. But we've we brought you the the truth here. So let's go into you know what happens next and what he said in his speech. In his outro speech, he needed to show his movement uh, something that of a win, right? Because people were really upset, people were really pissed off. He needs to get them to to vote for Biden, but he needed to really focus on them first. And that's why he probably didn't endorse Biden or anything like that. Bernie holds a lot of power. He said he's going to stay on the ballot to collect delegates, and he's going to inform the formal party platform. And, you know, between you and me, I don't think the party platform really matters unless there's something controversial in it, honestly, which makes news. Right. Um, it's going to be really telling of how he interacts with Biden. How many of his supporters will he get to vote Democrat? You know, that's par- That's it's partially going to be his party platform, right? He's going to be looped into this process, but this is his party or a party that he said he wanted to be a part. So he should be doing everything he needs to do to get as many of his supporters over to Biden as possible. And, you know, putting out joint proposals with Biden could help, all that stuff. So, you know, what happens next Bernie and Biden will have to negotiate how they move forward, how their relationship will be together, what concessions Biden is going to make. You know, we were, I was listening to Pod Save America, and they made a really good point about Biden may not come over to Bernie's side on policy, a little bit maybe, but he can certainly earn the trust of people who really don't like Biden by integrating Bernie's folks into his campaigns. Because if you have people working for you, you know that there's someone on the inside that really cares about the issues that Bernie worked for. So it's really up to Biden at this point. Biden won. He won. He won this thing, and he won it pretty convincingly. So um, there needs to be a key strategy um, on surrogates about, you know, Biden needs to make a campaign, and he needs to build a national campaign that melds together Bernie's folks and what Biden, you know, Biden's folks. And he needs to figure out a way forward with Bernie. And that's what, you know, what really needs to happen next. Yeah, I uh, completely agree with that. I think it's important for Biden to 
reach out to Bernie supporters and say, I am here for you and here's how I'm adopting my platform. And he's done some of that. You know, he took on a thing about college debt. He took on a thing about um, lowering the Medicare age uh, to 60 um, for part of Bernie's platforms. Biden can make small concessions here and there. and He needs to work with Bernie to, uh, you know, show him that Bernie has more of a say than Bernie would have had in uh, in uh, Clinton's campaign. And I think that'll be important for Bernie bros to uh Will to the Bernie, Bernie bros so. ever come home? Maybe not. But you know what? I, I vote for anyone other than Biden as I vote for Trump. That's all I that's all I can say. And, exactly. and I know people don't want to hear that, yep. but that's honestly the truth. If you honestly And oh, here's no, no, I was gonna say, here's my here's my here's why I'm a little bit hopeful that the Bernie bros will come home for Biden. And you can hold your nose and vote for Biden. It's not the end of the world. But I'm hopeful because, one, there's no longer the prospect of Trump being in office. Trump has been in office for four years. Maybe some of the Bernie bros thought to themselves, oh, Hillary doesn't need my vote. She's already going to win. All the analysts are picking her to win, right? There's no longer this threat of Trump being on. Trump is in office now. And, you know, and he has the opportunity to do more damage in his second term. That's the first thing. Second thing, it seems that Biden and Bernie seem to have a better relationship than Hillary and Bernie did. So they seem to have, they work together in the Senate. They seem a little bit more friendly. You know, Bernie got out a lot earlier. Bernie didn't get out till June in 2016, partially because he was doing better. Um, But, you know, hopefully that better working relationship and that threat of Trump actually having won will bring home some of the Bernie Bros. If they if they are best friends, you can call them BB. <laughs> no, you make very good points. You make very good points about that, Josh. About you know there there's a realistic opportunity for the Bernie Bros to come home, um, and you made a very uh, very good observation there. So we'll see we'll see what happens. And honestly, if if you supported Bernie Sanders and you do not care for Joe Biden, that's okay. But if you really if you really care about Bernie Sanders, his whole campaign slogan was "Not me, us." And if you really care about his policies and who he stands for, you will fight for someone you don't know, which was another slogan, and you will vote for Biden because he will help. He will help, you know, countless of Americans who have been impacted by Trump, and you know who won't help Trump. You know who won't help the Green Party. You know who won't help the Libertarian Party. There's very simple calculation here, and you have to put yourself before. Uh, I'm sorry, you have to put other people <laughs> before yourself. There's a one last thing before we get to Wisconsin. There's a great clip that I heard from a Bernie Sanders rally, where he and this is at the height of his, uh, you know, popularity. He said to people in his rally, he said, "Find someone that you don't know. Look around to someone that you don't know. Can you pledge to help that person and help them?" Uh, before helping yourself can you pledge to help someone who is underprivileged who doesn't have health care doesn't have you know the same rights that you do can you put pledge to help them before you help yourself it was a really powerful moment now and that's your candidate saying that now ask yourself who is going to help more people in office is it going to be joe biden who on the campaign trail is giving out his number to people who stutter, to people who have disabilities, who on CNN 
almost gave out his personal cell phone number to anyone who was struggling with the coronavirus. Is that person going to be more likely to help someone than Donald Trump? Ask yourself that question. And if the answer to that question is yes, then you have to vote Joe Biden. If the answer to that question is no, then look in a fucking mirror and ask yourself, <laughs> what is wrong with me? Oh, boy, and the mirror will crack, I think. <laughs> and, uh, I, I couldn't have said it better myself, Josh. Couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, look in a mirror. <laughs> Got me good. Got me good. Uh, <laughs> and the mirror will shatter. Because <laughs> you, <laughs> you have no soul. Uh, so the, <laughs> the last thing we want to talk about before the end of the entree is Wisconsin. Ugh, Wisconsin. Wisconsin, Wisconsin, Wisconsin. It's going to be a tipping point state in 2020. So Wisconsin had a primary election on Tuesday despite COVID due to Republican courts and the Supreme Court in the United States, which all ruled that Wisconsin's general uh, primary election could not be changed because the legislature has the power to do that, and they took it away from the governor. And the legislature, which is full of Republicans in Wisconsin, refused to change it. Why? Because I guess they wanted to kill more people who are Democrats. I mean, you know, uh, and and because of this, because of COVID, many counties had polling sites closed because they just couldn't have the right equipment. They couldn't staff them. The worst of which was in Milwaukee, which went from 180 voting sites to five, five throughout the entire city which means you have more people waiting on lines, more people potentially being contaminated, even though there were beautiful pictures of people social distancing in Wisconsin. But this is the United States of America, and we're holding a, an, a, an election which could have easily been moved in the height of this thing. Are you kidding me? So we don't have the numbers yet because nothing has been released because courts also mandated that numbers cannot be released until the, um, the next week when absentee ballots are supposed to be uh, counted. So uh, we don't actually have the numbers yet. We do not know who won or not. But, you know, there were long lines, uh, lines as long as five hours, apparently, and sometimes in the pouring rain. Um, likely early numbers was why Bernie dropped out. He won the state in 2016, but I can't imagine why would he drop out the day after the primary when people stood in line to go vote for him, which I didn't really understand. He should have just waited another week. You know, because if I voted for Bernie in Wisconsin, and he dropped out the next day. I'd be pissed. I stand and stood outside pissed. for two hours. I'd be <laughs> pissed off. Anyway, I don't think I was a good choice, but it shows how voting and voting rights are really key. And courts with judges who likely are Democrats uh, wouldn't have ruled this way um, and they would have protected public health. So, Josh, I know you want to talk about, you know, vote by mail. The worry is that this is going to be an early preview of 2020. Um, if there is a resurgence of coronavirus, or if we're just slowly getting back into normal life, um, how does this change voting? Because Trump cannot change the election. It only comes from Congress. And I, think, I don't think they're going to change the actual date. Right, So we're still going to have this election come uh in november 3rd um so you know if people don't want to be um standing in lines for five hours if you don't want polling places to close because they can't have workers come and staff them the thing to do is to vote by mail or to vote by absentee 
Um, these are things that every state can do, right? It's, it's, it's possible for every state to do this, right? Here's the issue. Democrats want to protect uh, mail voting and absentee ballots because it means that people can vote more often and you can get more people who can vote. Republicans do not want this. Trump even said that if, the, if, 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 that if you do some of the things that Democrats want to do, there will never be another Republican elected into office. Sounds good to us, right, Hilsey? Sounds great. Let's bring it on. <laughs> uh, and we have a clip here that we're going to listen to where uh, Trump uh, tries to say why he doesn't want mail in, uh, why he doesn't want mail votes, despite the fact that he voted himself by mail ballot. So let's take a listen. Mail-in voting, mailing mail-in ballots for voting. I think mail-in voting is horrible. You voted by it's mail corrupt. in Florida's election last month, didn't yeah, you? Sure, I, I could vote by mail for the. How do you reconcile because that? I'm allowed to. Well, that's called out of state. You know why I voted? Because I happen to be in the White House, and I won't be able to go to Florida to vote. The but let me just say, mailing within well, there's state a big difference between. So, as you heard in that clip, right, Trump says that he's allowed to vote by mail in Florida, because he's not going to be in Florida. He's in the White House. So he gets to vote by mail in Florida. But why can't everyone do that? Well, because there's mail fraud, there's voter fraud, there's rampant voter fraud, you know, by mail. And because, you know, he's an idiot. So uh, I think this is something that Democrats should play on. It's okay for Trump and his friends to vote by mail, but it's not okay for you to vote by mail. And this is why in 2020, it's so important not just to get him out, but to also fill your local, you know, offices, your local governments with Democrats who want to protect these things. It's, it's absurd that in the United States of America, the greatest democracy on earth, we make voting as hard as possible for some people. It just doesn't make any sense to me. And Democrats want to increase voting and Republicans want to decrease voting. And the last thing I'll say here, Hills, is it seems weird. There are Republicans who have done very well with mail-in ballots. The current governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, he did okay through mail-in ballots. And in fact, in 2016, Trump was telling his people to get their mail-in ballots in. So I don't necessarily think there's some huge fear that this could harm Republicans. But for whatever reason, they want to make voting as hard as possible unless you are a straight white male. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, you know what underscores your point, Josh, is that I saw something on Twitter that the, a Republican county in Pennsylvania sent a mailer to all of their Republican people at telling them to sign up for, abs, for mail-in ballots, absentee voting, because you don't want long lines at the polls. I mean, it's very evident. There is no evidence. There is zero evidence that there is mail-in ballot fraud. There, there isn't. There hasn't been any. Trump said um, that there would be people in a room stuffing ballots. It doesn't happen because you get, you get mailed out by the voter registry. Like, really, like, you need to register to vote to get your ballot. So there's not going to be stuffing of ballots because you can only have as many sent out as you got. Besides, there are, there are at least two states that do fully mail-in ballots. And I'm pretty sure that's it's definitely Colorado, and they've had no issues. And I'm pretty sure it does, it's Washington State as well. Um, at least Colorado. They, they both do mail-in ballots, especially Colorado, and they haven't had problems. You just need to be set up for it. So 
as Josh said, the only reason Trump is discouraging this is because he knows more people will be get to, get to vote and thus less Republicans potentially. So you know, when you franchise people and allow them to vote, the the results are just <laughs> you know yeah. <laughs> overwhelming. I mean, ask uh, that Corey Republicans Gardner, are not good. Who is the long term senator in Colorado? How has mail-in ballots worked for him? Probably pretty good. So, yeah. Well, we're going to find out. We're going to find out this year. I, I think they switched at some point when he got elected. So um, we're going to find out this year when he's up for re-election. Well, that was uh, <laughs> uh, the end of the day. Don't listen to anyone that says there's mail ballot fraud because ask them what evidence they have and they won't have it. So, Oh, and the last thing is the Alaska slogan is north to the future. The north to the future state. Yep, Love it. I guess so. Love it. <laughs> we told you we would and, get it for you, and Josh delivered. And the future is Biden, not Bernie. <laughs> the future is Biden. Oh, well, you, you made it through a lot through your through your entree and the appetizer, so we have a, a fun side dish, life under lockdown for you right right after this. Welcome to your side dish, which is going to be life under a lockdown. This is our third time doing it. We want to check in on you guys and see how you guys are doing. So, Hills, has there been has there been anything that's gone bad in your fridge during this uh, quarantine time? Yes, there has been. Um, well, we actually had dealt with it, but there was something going very bad in our fridge. Uh, we, a couple of weeks ago, actually probably a month ago at this point, we ordered pasta from our favorite place, and it was a, a, a penne alla vodka, I'm sorry, and we didn't eat all of it, right? So we put it in the fridge, and we had left it there for a long time. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I kept seeing it every day, and I said, I'm not dealing with that. I'm not dealing with that. And we were going, we were actually eating our leftovers the other night, and we said, okay, we have to deal with that. And it was, the smell was just no, no bueno, no bueno. It was very not good. <laughs> what about you? Do you have any, do you have anything that is uh, rotting right now? Uh, no, because I just, yesterday or Friday, I just went through and clean, cleared out our fridge. And luckily, there wasn't anything that was too bad. We had some uh, cheese that was a different color um, than we uh, originally had. But about two weeks ago, I had gone to the store um, and I came back and I had uh, these green beans and I had uh, these sugar snap peas. And I was like, oh, this is going to be great. We're going to use these in, in a stir fry. And then, you know, time went on and the stir fry just continued to not happen. And then, <laughs> and then about a week ago, we were uh, kept noticing this funny smell in the fridge. And I was like, oh, God, check the green <laughs> beans, check the sugar snap peas. And... Uh, they shouldn't, those vegetables should not have a smell when you open the bag. So, um, it's tough. It's tough. Uh, you try to buy things, you could try to think about like, you know, two weeks in advance or a week in advance and it's tough sometimes. Boy, uh, was the cheese, I want to learn more about the cheese. Was it supposed to be that color? The cheese cheese was mozzarella cheese, which is usually white. Um, and it looked like. Uh, someone had to take it and thrown it in the grass because it was green. Well, so. that is not what mozzarella is supposed to look like. <laughs> Maybe the no, guy from not. Green Eggs and no, Ham would love that. Maybe he would. Maybe he would. Sam, Sam I am. am. 
Would you like to try my green mozzarella uh, and ham? You should not. <laughs> you should not try green mozzarella or green yeah. ham for that matter. <laughs> um, the second part is we thought that uh, now that we have just one Democratic uh, nominee, Hills and I thought we would go back and take turns uh, seeing how many different candidates we can name. There were t- a total of 28 candidates. Um, and we're trying to see if we can get to name all 28, and that includes the nominee. Okay, it includes the nominee. So, Hills, do you want to start, or do you want me to start? Um, I'm happy to start, but up to you. Uh, go okay. ahead. Guess first. Um, I feel like this is like the Animaniacs song, when one of them goes through like all the countries <laughs> in the world, and then you have to like go and you point them out on the map. Okay, so we have Biden, Bernie, Warren, Com- Whoa, whoa, oh, whoa, 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 oh, I'm whoa, going too quick. Whoa, whoa, okay. You know, just you name a candidate and then I'll name a candidate. All right. Well, let's do those. Biden. Okay. So you said Biden and then I'll say Bernie. I'll say Warren. I think that that's as far as you got. Yeah, yeah. He's um, done. We'll go with the next high profile candidate, Wayne Messam. Wayne Messam. Uh, <laughs> Kamala Harris. Okay. We got Harris. Uh, we'll go with Mayor Pete. Cory Booker. Klobuchar. Ooh. Uh, Beto. Remember Beto was in oh, the race. Oh, God. I remember Beto. Uh, let's go with... Um, let's go with Bloomberg. Bloomy. Bloomy. Uh, Ju- Julian Castro. Yeah, we got Castro. Let's go with Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, I'm going to go with Christian, Kristen Gillibrand. Oh, <laughs> let's go John. Nice. Let's go John Hickenlooper. Okay. All right. Uh, he was, um, and I'm going to go in with Hickenlooper. I'm going with Bill, uh, Bennett, Senator Bennett, Mike Bennett, Mike, Mike Bennett. Bennett, Mike yeah. Bennett, Senator Bennett. Oh, here's a blast from the past. What about Bill de Blasio? <laughs> Boy, he should have never ran for president. Just he should he should not ever have. Uh, uh, D- Delaney. Oh, don't forget about John Delaney. John Delaney. Uh, let's go with uh, Mike Gravel. <laughs> Mike Gravel. Oh God! So, you know I'm picturing a lot of these faces, but I'm forgetting their names. Oh, so right now we've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. There are still 10 more candidates to name. Steve Bullock. Yep, there's one. Let's go. Oh, Andrew Yang, the Yang Gang. Couldn't I was gonna I was gonna go for the Yang Gang next. I was worried that um well I was gonna leave him. Um. Oh God, what's his name? Oh, he's a... See, I'm forgetting their names now. I'm forgetting like <laughs> their names are. Well, I'm gonna go Marianne Williamson. Oh, that was mine. Williamson, twenty-one. Oh, Deval Patrick. Okay, that's right. That's, that's right. Twenty-two. Uh, Tom Steyer. Oh, Steyer. That's 23. Let's go uh, Eric's, uh, 
Swalwell? Yes, that's his Damn, name. Damn, dang it. I, that's who I was thinking of. That's who I was thinking of. We're still four candidates? Cheese Jeez. and rice. How many, um, how many? I think it's it's my turn. Oh, it is your turn. Man. Boy, oh boy. Oh, I remember. Joe Sestak. Oh, Joe Sestak. <sighs> man, they need three more. Um, oh, Seth Moulton. I think that's his name. Oh, you're right. He did. Yes. He did. Yes. Oh, I got. I got two. I got two more. I. Okay. I, I think I. Uh, Jay Inslee. Jay Inslee. He was there. Oh no. <laughs> I don't know if I know the last one. Um, there's one more left. Do you know who it is? Yep. Oh my god. Seth Moulton <sighs> recalled him to my memory. So he's a he's a lesser known person, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Listeners, you're watching. Uh, you're watching. <laughs> you're watching my brain implode. I'm gonna lose the hills again. To, yeah. All right. I don't know who is it. Tim Ryan. Tim Ryan. God bless it. You know, I did not think of Tim Ryan, but when you said Seth Moulton, I don't know what cl- like. It clicked to me. Like I, I maybe they stood side by side or something. I don't remember. Oh well, there well, you go, we, listeners. But, but we, wins we, again. We, we basically named twenty eight people who ran for president, and <laughs> and we agreed that uh, it's Seth Moulton who's the nominee, right? Didn't he win? Yeah, President Moulton. <laughs> President Moulton, uh, who ran a one week campaign, and that was it. No, he ran longer than that, but no one knew. Yeah, there's a there's a great uh, clip of Seth Moulton. I'll just see if I can find it, where he gives an interview and he says, "I'm in it to win it," and then he drops out a week later. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, such such BS, right in the interview. Yep. All right. Well, that was your uh, your side dish, and we have a nice dessert coming up next. Okay, you made it through the side dish where we <laughs> painstakingly, but very fun listed the 28 Democratic candidates who ran for president, with the one being the nominee, which is Biden. So now that Biden is a presumptive nominee, your dessert, we're going to list our top three VP choices we think Biden should choose. Uh, We're also going to link in the show notes, there's going to be a CNN list that Chris Saliza has compiled of the most likely, I think they're like 14 or something, something like that, choices of the women that Biden can pick to be his vice president. So that's going to be linked so you can see the whole list. So I'm going to start first. We're going to list our top three choices, why we chose them, and then um, Josh will go after that and list why he he chose his choices. So my top three choices for Biden. Elizabeth Warren as number one. Number two, Kamala Harris. And number three, I could not decide between Stacey Abrams or um, Senator Catherine Cortez Masto from Nevada. Here's why I chose Warren. I think Warren would bring the most to his ticket. I know they don't see eye to eye on a lot of stuff and their styles are different, but Biden needs to energize youth turnout and he also needs to shore up his progressive wing. Um, And, you know, Warren's really smart. She's a super smart woman and, you know, she ran a really good campaign. And I think he would benefit. I think she would bring a lot to his ticket by having her there. 
and having those bona fides, especially to unite the party and get enthusiasm out for him. I think enthusiasm, while I love Tim Kaine on Hillary's ticket, I think he's a model politician and a good guy. He didn't bring a lot to the ticket. So that's why I think Warren is number one. Number two is Harris. I think it adds diversity as the first female black black vice president in history. Um, could be really, really compelling to a lot of people. Um, it could bring out folks from the African-American community, although her reputation to them is mixed because of her law background. But, you know, I think she's got charisma and she could really um, help Biden present the case to people in the country. And for number three, I think Stacey Abrams is a whip smart. Uh, she's you know one of the smartest people out there. Um, Though she doesn't have a lot of national experience, she, you know, the, her highest prominent position was the head of the Democratic minority in the Georgia House, um, so or Senate. So it's not like a high-profile thing, but she's super smart, and she would get people out to vote. And slash Masto, she is a low-profile Hispanic senator from Nevada, could help with the Hispanic vote, which Biden so sorely needs help with, as evident in the exit polls. Those are my choices. So, Josh, over to you. All right, so I'm going to go in the opposite order. I'm going to go three, two, and then one. My third option is Catherine Cortez Masto, who he'll mention. Um, she is incredibly smart. She is from uh, Nevada, which, according to latest polls, is a lot closer than I think uh, Democrats would like it to be. Um I think that, uh, you know, she is Hispanic, needs to drive up that vote. That's what Biden was lacking in the primary. She's also on the younger side, which she also needs. I think Warren's too old. Um, and I think, you know, part of it also is I, I read in that piece that apparently Harry Reid a little while ago had asked uh, Biden about Catherine Cortez Masto. And, he, and Biden said she's in the top three. So I think she's definitely in the running. She's my dark horse pick. Um, don't be surprised if he ends up picking. Um, we should just do a quick side note. He, we're, all, we're, we're listing all uh, women because Biden said in his last debate with Bernie that he was 100% going to pick a female running mate. So uh, there are plenty of qualified men out there, but we're just listing female candidates um, as that's what Biden said. My second option is Gretchen Whitmer. Um, she is the current governor of Michigan. Uh, Joe Biden has a podcast. And she was his second guest, his first official guest who wasn't part of his uh, actual campaign. Um, and Whitmer and Biden have a really nice chemistry uh, together. Um, she thinks the world of Biden. Biden thinks the world of her. Um, you know, he loves the job that she's doing as, as governor. And I think it'd be so great to see her on a debate stage with Mike Pence, where Biden or where, where uh, Trump has called her that woman from Michigan. And she has a t-shirt now that says that woman from Michigan. Um, and just to be up there and just spear Pence over and over and over again about how poorly the federal government did and how she was left to her own devices in Michigan. She's very, very popular in Michigan. She's Her group ratings are in like the 70s right now. She's very, very popular. Um, and she's a longtime friend of Biden. I mean, listen to that podcast episode. It's episode two of the Biden podcast. And you just see, like, they just mesh so well together. He's able to, she's able to kind of uh, bring down some barriers for him, make him seem, like, a little loose and more fun. Um, it's a really good podcast, and she is a very impressive person. And then my number one person is Kamala Harris. Uh, Kamala Harris would not only be the first African-American um, uh, to be the vice president, she would also be the first, I think she's also Indian-American as well. 
Um, and I think you're right. And so that'd be the first for both of them. The first African American, first Indian American. Also, she can raise money like it's no one's job. I mean, you know, she can raise tons of money, uh, as she showed at the beginning of her uh, presidential uh, campaign. It gets a nice East Coast West Coast vibe, and plus, she, she is a good debater, and she could spear Pence up there. Um, something I think Tim Kaine did not do a good enough job of. So my three are Harris is one, Gretchen Whitmer is two, and Catherine Cortez Masto is three. I did I like Stacey Abrams a lot. I think that she um, is very, very talented, and as soon as she gets some more experience, I fully think that someone should put her on a ticket or she should run herself. I don't think he, Biden's going to pick her because he said in some debate um, that the vice president is someone you have to be able to turn to and say, your job is to do this, because the presidency is so huge. I don't think Abrams has that experience. Um, I don't think it's going to be one. I think Warren's too old. Well, um, I, I will, I will attest, uh, Josh, you're wrong. No. <laughs> those are good. Those are good picks. Uh, I will attest to you the, the, the chemistry that Biden and Whitmer had on the podcast was excellent. Yeah. I will attest to that. It just felt it was, it was not as good as us, Josh. Well, I mean, obviously it was not. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it was, it was close. It was close. I mean, I, I, maybe, maybe that will put, you know, personal relationships. You have to like the person you're yeah you're with i mean obama and biden had a really close relationship well you don't have to but you you probably should right so um those are only our three by the way there are a lot of other ones we think could mm -hmm. be good but those are our top three so uh watch out for that i don't think it's going to happen before this crisis is over i think it'd be a little weird but look for it probably in may or maybe late may or early june i think he's going to do it early because he has this much time. Exactly. And he, he told Bernie Sanders last week, before Bernie dropped out, that he was going to start looking for, he was going to start his vice presidential search. Uh, he said he didn't want to seem, uh, you know, like he was counting chickens or be uh, presumptuous, but he wanted to go ahead with that process. So the process has started for him. I think Hills were one or two months away from Biden naming his vice president. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think he'll do it early because he's got the time and he doesn't need to wait. To do it but he's probably gonna wait until covid is subsided boy the dessert is done and um i think you're all really wanting to hear the answer to the pre-dinner shot question so uh josh is ready to give it to you so you've gone through your dessert your entree your side dish your appetizer and all you want to know is the answer to the pre-dinner shot. So here's the question one more time in case you've forgotten. The question is, <clears throat> how recently was the Democratic primary over in April? So we're asking you to go back and look in time and say the last time that the primary was decided by April. And the answer is in 2004. John Kerry was able to wrap up the Democratic primary in 2004 around March, sorry, yeah, around March 11th. He got through Super Tuesday, won a number of Super Tuesday states, and uh, finished it off in uh, on March 11th after talking to some D.C. Uh, people about um, his delegate count. The differences there are a couple. One is uh, is that um, the age of social media didn't really exist then, so it wasn't as widely publicized. But also, um, there were super delegates back back then. 
So, um, and then we have Superdelegates now, but based on 2016, one of the changes Bernie got was these superdelegates, these party leaders, these senators, these representatives, former presidents, you know, big name figures like that. Um, they were able, they could not vote until the second ballot at the convention. So if no one got the number of uh, votes at the convention, 1,991, then you would have superdelegates who would cast their votes to get someone over the line, right? So superdelegates counted towards your overall delegate lead. And in 2004, John Kerry was able to get a number of superdelegates very early on, uh, and they all kind of came around him. And uh, he, he wrapped it up pretty early. Um, he, he, he wrapped it up really by March 11th. So, wow. That I, didn't, I never realized answer. that. Yeah, it's crazy. You wouldn't have thought that he wrapped it up that early, but uh, he did. So, Remember when John Edwards was a thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then he flamed out in 2008. Yeah, no. Uh, uh, back in 2004... Uh, Kerry had the big wins of uh, New York, Ohio, California, Georgia. Here's something that's pretty crazy. Kerry won California 64% to 20% of, of Edwards. Man, the Californians just went nuts for Kerry. And in uh, New York, Kerry won 61% to 20%. He won Ohio 52 to 34 He won Georgia. It was closer, but he won it 47-41. So Kerry won a, a, a lot, most of the Super Tuesday uh, states against John Edwards. And uh, there you go. Well, then he was sister. his running mate. It was Kerry Edwards, if I remember correctly. It was. It was. Yeah, he yeah. did read to Edwards. So I'm sure they had – that's probably part of the reason they ended up so early is because Edwards realized that he didn't really have a path forward. And so rather than dragging it out, he agreed to be his uh, vice president. So 2004, that's the last time. So there we go. You heard it here. That's great. That was a great question. Yeah. Um, Hills, anything else before we go? No, I hope you in- enjoyed the episode. We, um, I, I did. I enjoyed it. I hope, you start, I hope you're enjoying listening to it. We'll be back again soon for more. But I think Josh has a couple of important messages for you. A few important messages before we go. First off, thank you to everyone who listens to this. You know, this is why we do it. We do it for, for you guys who listen. So we really do appreciate that. But the intro and outro music is done by Brett Hillsburg. If you enjoy, please hit the subscribe button on your podcast app. It really helps us out. Tell your friends to listen. And if you can, share this episode on some kind of social media platform. Uh, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. And if you have any questions, you can email us at threecoursepolitics at gmail.com. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll be back in your pod feed soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye.